Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis. In today's podcast, which is the final of our season, I'm speaking to Chrissy O'Rourke, Head of Conduct Standards at RICS, about culture and the new rules of conduct which come in force on February the 2nd, 2022. So I work in the standards team at RICS. So we're quite a big department within the organisation. A lot of my colleagues are surveyors from different disciplines within surveying, and they're responsible for the technical standards that we write. So things that people will be familiar with, like the Red Book, like the real estate standards, like the Black Book, and all the, the sort of land standards that we have. But my role is to write standards which are, or and review standards, which are more about how people behave as professionals. So sort of outside the technical surveying work and more about kind of their relationships with clients and with the outside world. And that's why I led the project to do with the, the rules of conduct, because that's the, the part of the work that I do. So when we're developing standards, we use expert working groups. So those are usually made up of members, although they'll often have other stakeholders on them. So, for example, the Rules of Conduct one had some independent people who have experience of regulating in other professions. It also had lawyers on it. So a lawyer who deals with sort of negligence claims against surveyors and and represents surveyors in those kind of cases, but also a lawyer who works in compliance for one of the big firms. So we try to put together the right group of people to really help us to understand what's going on in the market, where the risks are and what the standards need to be. Um, And that's really how all our ICS standards are put together. What's your background? How did you end up in this kind of role? So my background's in professional regulation. So I started out working for the Law Society, so to do with their regulation of solicitors. And then I've moved on to other sort of regulators and complaints handling bodies. So I worked for the regulator for teachers for a while, but also the pensions ombudsman that handles complaints about pension schemes um, and tries to resolve those. So that's my background. And I came into our ICS in regulation. So I started out as head of conduct. So I was the person making decisions about which cases should go to disciplinary action. And I also managed the solicitors who then brought those cases in front of tribunals. But then there was an opportunity to move over to the standards team, which I think it's helpful that I bring that regulation perspective because I understand the sharp end. But it's actually been a really amazing opportunity for me to work more closely with members to actually try and improve things where it really matters in how things are done to start with rather than when they all go wrong later on. Um, Yeah, so so proactive almost rather than reactive. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, nobody wants to have a complaint made against them. You know, I know people are fearful of of our ICS regulation, but we do understand that having a complaint made against you is is a horrible thing. We obviously have a job to do when we're considering complaints, and and that's really important that we're sort of fair and even-handed and we treat the complainant and the member or firm equally. But we do know that you know, most surveyors will only ever find themselves in that situation a few times, that it's a really scary thing and that they have wanted to do their best. It's really horrible to have a complaint made against you. You know, very few people that I've ever dealt with, I thought, you know, were had gone wrong because they intended to. They'd gone wrong because 
they'd been distracted with other things, they had too much on, they just made a bad call. And I think that's where our standards can help sometimes in that decision-making process and in just providing that framework around you that helps you to make decisions in those difficult situations that we all face sometimes when we're working. Yeah. And you know what this, I think you and I are quite aligned on some of this, perhaps with our our complaints sort of background, because I don't believe anyone goes out to do a bad job unless they've got a bit of a serious (laughs) issue. But no, no one sets out for, to, to do a job bad job but sometimes these things happen and they come about yeah and it's you know and and people who've heard the podcast will have heard me talk before that you know to do a job well you need the technical ability and you know whether you're qualified enough you know whether you've got the, the experience or not but the technical ability to do a job you need to be able to do that job in context and I think sometimes surveyors you know, in so particularly, for example, the residential surveyors that I work with, you know, they're in and out, do the survey, very little customer engagement. And you don't see the whole context of the whole home buying and selling process and what's going on for the for the clients and for the vendor and, and yeah. those things. It's social sensitivity as well, you know, and being sensitive to what is what is going on, what is the right thing to to do. And then the, you know, having the wisdom to know what to do in the moment. And for all of the the rules and standards that we have, we need to be able to trust our gut instinct yep. as to what's to do in the moment, whether that's the way that we report something, the way that we react. And, and often a lot of surveyors, and I think particularly those early on in their career, don't necessarily have that because most of us have imposter syndrome about feeling a good enough surveyor, you know, and so we we, we second guess ourselves. And many of the complaints and claims that I've come across over the years, not just for the corporate that I worked with, but for the small firms that I've also uh, supported over the over the years and, and, and now in my business club and things like that, they will often say, when something goes wrong, I knew that one was going to be a problem yeah. or there's something that wasn't quite right. You know, recently I spoke to a surveyor just the other day who reached out because they have got an RICS regulation complaint that's come in. It's not gone through their complaints procedure, you know, and they were in a huge panic. And I talked them through, you know, how it works, signpost them to the earlier podcast, which we'll put in on regulation, which we'll put in the in the show notes. And, you know, and, and the surveyors involved were just absolutely devastated that their yeah. opinion and, you know, the, the support that they try to give, you know, has, 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 um, has been questioned, if you like, and then it's, it's all fallen apart. And you think, how did it come to this? And so they were quite upset. But when we when we talked through, there were alarm bells all yeah. the way through that actually this was, you know, perhaps a fraudulent situation. Yeah. And so they, they're reporting it as suspicious activity to the commercial lender. But, you know, there were signs early on, this isn't quite right, or mm-hmm. I don't like the way I'm being spoken to or being treated. And you know, that then formed, you know, so it's not just about having terms, you know, and, and following the rules in that sense. It's really about, um, uh, you said, you know, that standards for the way that people behave, but people are so different and the curveballs all over the place. And you never quite can quite predict, but if you consistently act in a way, and I think the guidelines and the rules of conduct and things that we have really help us to do that at our ICS, if, if we do that, but if we just trust our own gut instinct as, mm, actually, this doesn't seem quite right, or we go and talk to other people and other professionals about it. Have you come across this situation with a with a client? Is this normal? I've not seen this before. And we can do that, and yet sometimes we don't allow ourselves to 
to do that, then that can really help us with that grounding of, okay, what to do in the moment and how we react. Because we get to choose how we react to these things, don't we? We do. Absolutely. And some of that is about confidence. And like you say, it's, it's, you know, it's really important. It's one of the things that I often say to people, you know, have you talked to anyone else about this who, who does the work that you do? So I think that's really helpful advice. But of course, we all come under pressure in our work. We come under pressure from, you know, from clients. We might come under commercial pressure from, you know, a boss or, or other people within a practice. And that's sometimes actually where standards can really help. If you can point to something on a piece of paper that says, you know, I'm a professional and my professional body says, actually, I can't do this, or I have to do this in a particular way. Sometimes that can be helpful just to, to to sort of stave off some of that pressure. Obviously, it's slightly easier often with a client than it can be with with internal commercial pressure. But I mean, the one thing I would say to people who you know who are dealing with regulation is, unsurprisingly, the people in regulation have a lot of experience of dealing with complainants and their relationships with them are rarely easy as well. You know, they understand that people are dealing with difficult situations. And sometimes, you know, mistakes happen and it's really important for public confidence in the profession that regulation takes some action. There does have to be an upholding of standards, but regulation is not starting out wanting to take action against people. Regulation is always starting out wanting to try to help to resolve you know, the situation, if it can. Um, some situations are much too serious. You know, there are some things, obviously mm-hmm. things around client money or, you know, serious conflicts of interest that that you just can't do that, you know, that that you have to lay down a marker and say, actually, no, this isn't something that's right. But on the whole, you know, regulation is is looking to try to try to deal with the reality of the situation rather than any kind of counsel of perfection. In the rules of conduct in the introduction, we talk about the fact that regulation only takes action for serious breaches that most of the time we think that that members and firms will be able to where they see something that isn't quite right will be able to sort of work it out themselves fight, make improvements and changes themselves but also that what we expect under the standards is for people to do what's reasonable what's reasonably possible you know um there's a lot of concern about you know some of the the areas so we'll talk a little bit i'm sure about the structure of the rules but we have some behaviours in there which help people to understand what we mean by some of the concepts in the rules. And one of them, for example, is about modern slavery and about the fact that you need to have your eyes open to exploitation in, in the supply chains that you work with. And we've been asked questions a few times about, you know, what does that mean that I have to like go back and check my supplier, 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 you know, how far back do I have to go? And the answer to that is always, it's about proportionality. It's about reasonableness. And effectively, it's about having your eyes open to the possibility of this and not turning a blind eye to something, not failing to do checks because it's easier. You know, do the checks that are reasonable. All of us, I think, now when we're buying things are used to the idea of ethical and sustainable supply of goods and services. And it's just about that. It's just about bringing that kind of sensibility to your work. It's not a council of perfection. Mm. The other thing I think I'd like people listening to this to I guess to, sort of to position the the rules and standards of whatever organisation they're they're a member of. You know, RICS isn't the only only one out there. But it's to think about you know what are these rules and standards there to do for me and my business? And you can either choose, and here comes a a descriptor, <laughs> an insight into my brain and description. But you could either choose for it to be like some mesh netting over your head, and you're trying to move forward, but there's 
you know, you just keep on getting stuck and getting yourself in a knot, you know, and sort of feel caged almost by the rules uh, around you. Or you can choose to be a bowling alley and have those training rails that I have to have uh, up that helps you move, you know, you throw the ball and the chances are you're going to hit something because you've got the training rails, you know, that it's setting yourself up for success. Yeah. And so I think it's important when you, when you have rules like this, that you, they're, they're there to set you up for success and you don't view it in your business as a, oh, that's a, another barrier, another thing that I've got to do, another tick box I've got to meet. But you, you look at it in a positive way and say, okay, well, this, how is this helping me towards success? And it may be for, for some people that you need to evolve your business. I think that's something that some surveyors perhaps forget is that, you know, the business that you might have had 10 or 15 years ago is different to the business you have now because the world, world has changed. And it's not just the rules have changed, but we are much more savvy on things like, you know, modern slavery. That wasn't even a thing of a few years yep. ago. UN Sustainable Goals and, and the SDGs, which I'm, you know, I align my business to, um, you know, it, it's uh, the way that we position our businesses. It's not just the transaction, making money, checking buildings are okay and those things. It's yeah. about the impact that we have and the the difference that we, we make in the world. And that sounds quite, you know, aspirational, but it's a real thing, you yeah. know, and all the surveyors that I talk to and lots of them that I've spoken to on this podcast, you know, when you ask them why they became a surveyor, they fell into it mostly. But there's that story of making a difference and being motivated. And so looking at the at these rules, the standards, all the, the bits of paper that we have in our ICS, you know, for that is to move you in a positive direction. And, and the rules change. And hence, that's why we're having a chat today, because the rules have, have been updated. And, and let's have a talk about that. So I'd like people to just have that in, in the back of their mind. And they shouldn't see it as a negative. So... Let's first of all just talk about what was there before, because we had rules of conduct for firms, for members, global ethics standards. And I know, you know, there's lots of, oh God, standards, guidance notes, practice notes, oh, whatever it is. There's lots of different things for for surveyors to to navigate. So, but the principle of this is it's been really simplified, hasn't it? So what was it before and what's it now moved to? Yeah. So what we've tried to do is, is exactly that, is to make it simpler and clearer for people to use. So at the moment, so the new rules come into force on the 2nd of February. So for about the last, it's been at least 10 years, possibly longer than that, that we've had two sets of rules of conduct. So rules of conduct for members, rules of conduct for firms. Most of those are, are the same. So there are nine rules for members and then 15 for firms. So there are some extra ones for firms that cover things that really only firms can do, like have client money processes, have professional indemnity insurance, that sort of thing. And then we had the global ethical principles, which were brought in later than the rules. And they really focused on the fact that actually when you're a professional, your rules are in the context of making complicated decisions and you need to apply a code of values. You can't just expect that as a professional, there will be a set of rules where you can tick a box and say, you know, that's what I must do in every situation. There are some ethical principles, some values that that lie beyond those. And what we've tried to do in the new document is bring those concepts together. So I think that the rules were always based to some extent on ethical principles. You know, the most important rule, the one that we use most of the time when we're talking to members and firms was rule three, which was about acting with integrity, avoiding conflicts of interest. Now, integrity, of course, acting with integrity is an ethical principle. 
It's not a, a rule. There's no rule book that says this is what a person acting with integrity does. So the concepts were already there, but what we've tried to do is bring those together into one document. So we now have a set of rules and conduct that applies to all members and firms. There are five rules. They are, in fact, really quite similar to the existing global ethical principles. So people who are familiar with those, there won't be any big surprises. And they focus really on what's most important for the public, for stakeholders, for clients. So being treated with respect and honesty, having people who are competent do the work, providing good service, treating people with respect and encouraging diversity and inclusion, and then taking responsibility for your work, um, acting in the public interest, preventing harm. So these are things, so we chose those really because those are the things that are, that we think we understand from our, our research with people who use our services. That's most important to clients. Those are the things that you would expect from a professional. There's also then an appendix there are some obligations of membership and being a regulated firm that really are about your relationship with RICS and, and the way that you run your business as an RICS member or firm. So those are things like responding to investigations, RICS investigations and requests for information, complying with the CPD policy, complying with the professional indemnity um, requirements that the board sets. So those are in an appendix. They're professional obligations that firms and members have that are really more about their relationship with RICS than with their than with their clients. And I'll pop a, a link to all of this in the um, in the show notes uh, so everybody can uh, can access it. And I'm just having a quick look through now as we talk, and it is so much simpler than it than it was before. One of the things that that comes to mind, I guess, is how do we measure it? You know, so for example, I'm looking at Rule One. Members and firms must be honest, act with integrity and comply with their professional obligations, including obligations to RICS. You know, example behaviours, uh, and there's lots of examples in here, which is really helpful. You know, members must not, and firms must not mislead others by their actions or omissions. How does a business implement that? How does it check? Because it's one thing to have a sort of a set of rules, but I think it's in the implementation of making sure, you know, how are we measuring this? And I guess that's that's the bit that I see is lacking from big corporates to small firms. One of the things I talk about on my masterminds and my my business club and um, programs is that you need to have um, to make sure you have a, a monthly meeting with yourself and a check in, almost like your, your yeah. own board meeting. And within there, you know, you include what's going on for you, you know, what's happening in your life and, and, and in your business, what's the market doing. But also, I think this is an opportunity then to integrate, okay, how am I doing against the rules of conduct? Yep. You know, what is my work doing? Has there been any issues or incidents that I need to, to make note of? Is there a process that I can, can change? Um, so, so, and I think a common thing that comes up when I speak to different surveyors is actually the customer journey. Yep. All surveyors talk about the customer journey and holding the client's hand all the way through it. And it doesn't happen, really. But when we talk about, you know, just not mislead or omit something, well, if you think about, you know, a, when someone phones up to book a survey and the terms get sent out, but then there's some confusion that happens somewhere over. So, for example, I was talking to a, a client recently and they had a vendor complaint because the vendor didn't know he was going to be there for three hours and lift up carpets. And it was quite a detailed building survey. Right. And you think, well, that's a an, an omission, if you like, you know, in terms of that that process. And 
you know, that could potentially go to a, a serious complaint. On the one hand, you can sort of bat that away on the, or you could start to take it, you know, take it seriously and, it, you know, could go to a complaint. But there's an improvement there, you know, so that in the process, when the appointment is booked with the vendor, that you do all that you can to explain what will happen on site and how far the surveyor will or wouldn't go or whatever. And so I think it's important that surveyors then start to implement these, but also notice all of these small things. And again, it's not about feeling caged with that, you know, net around you. It's about improving things, constantly improving things. And I think a lot of these rules, you know, can be a force for good for your business because then you're improving your service to clients, which means that you'll never get a complaint like that again. And the vendor that you've booked it with could potentially be a client in the future or you know, you refer yeah. you in some way. So, I mean, that's how I see it. But do you see that? Or do you have any advice for firms on how to implement and measure these things? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously reflective practice is a really important part of that and, and using feedback from clients, using feedback from complaints, using feedback from each other within a, you know, if you work in a slightly bigger firm, maybe you have colleagues, you know, thinking about what's gone well is often really instructive as well. You know, did you do something in this particular instruction that worked really well? Can you share that information? It's not just about what's gone wrong. And some of it is about process. You know, there are processes that you can put in place. You can have standard information, you know, checks and balances, things like that for some areas. Some of it is about culture. Some of it is about how we how we talk, particularly where we employ people, what we're seen to value, whether we share information about our own ethical, you know, our own ethical dilemmas and how we've resolved them. One of the things that we've done as part of the support for the rules of conduct is publish some case studies, some scenarios. So we've taken some of the the issues that quite commonly arise either through complaints to regulation or because, you know, we we try to help people when they come to us with ethical issues. And we've we've just walked people through what our thought process would be about which rules apply, what kinds of things you might need to take into account in reaching a decision, and just some helpful hints about things like, you know, it's really helpful to record your decision making. If you're in a difficult situation and you're not sure what to do, you know, just making a file note about what you've considered and why perhaps you've decided to go the way that you have, there's a later complaint either by a client to an ADR provider or you know, to regulation, that's something that's really helpful. It can show that you thought about what to do and that you had reasons to do what you did. And that's always a really helpful thing to be able to produce. Um, it's a helpful thing for yourself as well, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's part of that, you know, social sensitivity and doing the job in context. Because when you when you make a note about how you feel, what happened, that can really be quite useful in a file. But I know some surveyors then worry about GDPR and, you know, what if we have to disclose the file? And I just think, do you know what? If you've got to disclose that stuff, you've got bigger problems, <laughs> you know? Obviously, yeah. you should never write anything derogatory. But if someone made you feel uncomfortable, you know, if there were certain circumstances that, that, that came about that, that were unusual or that just made you think, making a note on it and reflecting on it or making out of, you know, your line, you spoke to your line manager about it, or you, you know, you discussed it with a, a peer group or whatever. Actually, it all adds weight to the fact that, you know, when you're reviewing a, a file later down the line with a complaint or a claim or whatever, is that you've got that sort of richness to it that gives you, as a, as a complaint reviewer, you know, confidence 
that someone has taken this seriously. They weren't just dismissive. You know, they did give it thought, yeah. and it, and it um it really enriches it. And there's some great examples actually on the on the website with everything from you know how to negotiate social media data breaches, personal conduct, all of those things. You know, so it's definitely worth members uh, ha- having a good read through through that um, page. And you mentioned culture, and these rules I think really help share a and promote a shift in culture. And at the moment, you know, with the year that we've had, a couple of years that we've had at RICS, that is absolutely paramount, not just for RICS itself, but also for, you know, obviously for members. But changing a culture is no easy thing. And you can't do it by yourself, but there does need to be, you know, sort of commitment within a business, within an organisation to make that shift. But measuring culture and understanding what we don't like about a business and the way that we operate and what we do like, you know, and where we want to be is really hard, isn't it? It is really hard. And it's connected to that sort of, you know, that old adage, isn't it, about what you measure is what you get. So actually, one of the documents that I find really interesting is we've just launched the Responsible Business Framework um, for companies that are managing property. And that's looking at those sort of ESG measures that you can use when you are measuring that property. And I think that that's such an interesting shift. And I think that that's something where, you know, it's it's obviously for a lot of firms, that's not going to be directly relatable, but it's a really interesting document in that it starts to get you to think about the things that you could measure and how you could do it that aren't just profit, aren't just, you know, billable hours, aren't just fees that help to, to make it clear that you actually value things that aren't just how much money somebody makes, that you value things about how your relationships, you know, those longer term things about your relationships with clients. The fact that if you give a client good service, you know, I quite often talk to members who who are really thoughtful about this. You know, I, I was talking to someone the other day who was dealing with, with a, a client who um, had instructed them in a boundary dispute. Um, and once they'd done the inspection, they realised that, you know, their their report wasn't going to be particularly supportive of the position that, that the client wanted. And, you know, they had quite sensibly thought, well, I can do a short report just saying what I've found and limit their fees so that they don't, so that they can decide whether they want the longer report, given that it's not going to be helpful to them. You know, those sorts of things where, where those sort of, that longer term thinking can help with client relationships, can help with returning business. You know, those are the those are the sorts of things I think sometimes that, you know, really good firms, you know, sustainable long-term businesses measure and think about, not just how can we squeeze the most out of this particular instruction. And it's where a lot of the, you know, you were talking earlier about things changing and it's been really interesting in the, so we've been working on this project for sort of two years now obviously it was been quite delayed by covid in the middle but when i first started out i went out and talked to regional boards across the uk and globally and we talked about how do we tackle sustainability and there were a lot of people who were very clear that it was something that that needed to be in the standards but the real concern was um you know when i talked to my clients they're interested until we start to get to costs and then they're and then it's it's you know all of that stuff really isn't that of that interesting to me but I think we're starting to see you know obviously with the increase in energy costs with you know the flooding that we've had over the last couple of years my sense is that that is shifting and actually 
you know, more and more clients are going to going to really benefit from that expertise that they get from members and that sort of long-term thinking that this isn't necessarily just about what you spend today, but it's about trying to help you with what you're going to spend over the next mm. five years. Mm. And this is where the, the business model and the way you approached it five, 10 years ago is not where we're heading in the next five, 10 years future. Yeah. Absolutely. It's an interesting thing, you know, yeah, we do have clients, you know, um, who just want a quick fix and we need the money and we just do the job to take, to take the money. And, but what I'm sensing with a lot of surveyors, you know, and, and this is something that comes through on my, certainly on the masterminds that I have is they've got that sense of, well, why did I become a surveyor? And what kind of surveyor do I want to be in the future? And actually I see that a lot with people who are going for their FRICS actually, because it's a period of reflection, you know, of, you know, how far have I come and and actually what am I going to do with this? And what difference am I going to make? And and that's a really, it's a joyous thing for me to see, but I think that there's a a really huge, huge impact. And And just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with, if you've advised your client and you've told them about, you know, what might be more sustainable and they say, do you know what, look, my budget at the moment is just that I just have to do the bare minimum. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. And and that's not a breach of the rules. But what's important is that you've done that professional job of saying, look, here's the downsides to that. Here's what else you might want to consider. Yeah. And, and there are things that you can do that signpost people, you know, without going the, the whole hog, because yes, there are budgets, uh, constraints. And, but even... You know, and I know I can just think of, you know, a lot of surveyors, you know, they have their their surveys, almost an appendix at the back, you know, that tells people, you know, where their, their local tidy tip and recycling centre is, you know, what the local yeah. initiatives are, you know, those kind of things. That's just something that they didn't perhaps know. Um, yeah. And it's that signposting and, and just being helpful that can be really powerful. And one of the things I think it's different working with consumers versus uh, when you've got when you've got businesses and, and tenders and things like that because ultimately you know it does all come down to price you know there are yep. those who are, want to have more meaningful work and meaningful relationships but it does come down to price but I think if you're consistent in how you offer your services and then it does include these there's this sort of values approach I guess yeah uh, that what that then does is it helps your clients meet their own targets and I remember this from years ago when um when I was involved in tenders for um, mortgage uh, work, panels work from lenders to uh, to surveyor firms, you know, and there'd be a, um, you know, a section on corporate social responsibility, um, you know, do we do any recycling, <laughs> all, all of yep. that kind of thing. And then the FC, um, uh, Financial Services Authority brought in some some new regulations, you know, tre- treating customers fairly, you know, and, and the, the financial sector is regulated quite heavily on that front. But as surveyors, we weren't. But what we did is we adapted our the way that we worked, the tenders that we put in to help our clients meet their targets. Yes. And so it included things that would help them, you know, reporting that we gave monthly. And it was no no different really to, to the way that we worked, but it was presenting it in a way that helped our cl- their clients improve things. And then the relationships then, then built from there. So it's thinking about, thinking ahead uh, about, you know, that, that value in the relationship, even if it's yeah. a one-off transactional, the, the difference that you can that you can then make, but helping them make their meet their own targets. Absolutely. Just just on targets. And I think it's might be wrong, someone will correct me. I think it's all Par- Parkinson's law where when something becomes a target, it ceases become to become a good measure or something like that. But but the fact that when you start to 
have a you know have KPIs, you know, key mm-hmm. performance indicators, and you have targets, you have dashboards, you know, a colourful dashboard to see how well we're doing. It almost ceases to become a good measure of what's being done because it just comes down to numbers and it just comes down to, you know, a red, amber, green, how are things being done? And I remember uh, being involved in some customer experience uh, work and um, I've judged at the customer experience awards and, and things like that. And I remember one one entry talking about a maturity matrix and almost setting out, you know, this is what our culture is like now. This is yeah. the way that we interact with clients now. And they had lots of different bits of research and um, yes, there were targets and measures and, you know, reviews on Trustpilot or whatever, you know, but, but then it was, a, you know, a, but this is what we aspire to be. And how will we feel when we get there? Do we feel like we're an ethical business? And, and it, it takes it away from or becoming more than just numbers, yep. you know, just numbers of jobs and amount of income that, that's coming in. But, you know, what are what are our clients saying? What are our employees saying? Importantly, how are they feeling? And you you look at sort of that more um, qualitative information, not just the quantitative numbers, and really tuning into maturity matrix. How mature are we getting to towards where we actually want to be? And I think that's really key when it comes to changing culture. You know, do we feel like we're acting with integrity or is there is there somebody in the business who either isn't or doesn't feel like we are? And are they being heard? Is there yeah. a for- forum for them to share that this doesn't feel right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and people notice, don't they? You know, if you've got a high performer in the business who is seen to be allowed to get away with unethical behaviours, that sends a much more powerful message than anything else that you can do or say. You know, you, you have to hold, you have to hold people to the things that you want them to do. And, and actually make it clear what it is that you value. You know, one of the things that we're doing to try to help, particularly people starting new firms, is we're putting out, we're working at the moment with a group of members who run their own firms of of various different sizes, um, but most of them quite small firms, to actually try to start to put together, you know, some advice, some help on what are the things that they've found really useful in trying to build that kind of customer service culture in, in what are the things that at the start of a client relationship they found sets it up on the right basis so that the client does understand what they're going to get. And does, and when things go wrong, you move from a position of trust rather than, you know, a position of sort of transactional kind of relationship. What are the things that, you know, you could put in a quality management system. What are the things that when you've got a complaint, you could do? So it's not going to be a standard. It is going to be some sort of advice for people. But I think that that that's the kind of thing that, you know, lots of us develop skills in that, don't we, as we go through our careers. So one of the things that we're going to try and do is is help to bring that information sort of forward so that people have have something that they can start to read and start to think about sort of maybe earlier particularly when they're when they're first setting up which I'm you know is a, a scary time for lots of people isn't it there's an awful lot to consider then so I think the more that we can do to support people to kind of get those things right from the beginning the better it will be it is but also I think when you first start out when I think about myself when I started in business and where I am now it evolves this is where I think you've got, got to constantly come back to what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. You know, for um for those of it you who haven't seen it, there's a very famous TED talk by a chap called Simon Sinek. You know, it's all about sort of starting with why, why? he gives the example yeah. of, of Apple and how that that got transformed. Um, 
you know, but you, it's starting with the wine, always sort of coming back to that. So, so just, if you just sort of go sort of quickly, maybe sort of perhaps the, through the rules as there's only five. So as I mentioned yep. before, the first one is so this acting with honest integrity and complying to the, to the, the obligations. obligations. And I guess that's, you know, you're signing up to be part of a professional membership with a Royal Charter. And it's yep. remembering that whatever we might think of what's gone on over the past couple of years, you know, for 154 years, you know, this is where we, we've got to, we have that history with us. So that that's all about that. The second one, members and firms must maintain their professional competence and ensure that services are provided by competent individuals who have the necessary expertise. And this is something, I guess, I mean, my first thought when I read that was thinking about trainees yep. and student surveyors. And or, or you know surveyors who progress in their career because at some point you you stretch yourself mm-hmm. you know you go out to a property and you think oh not <laughs> you know you're dealing with a contract and you think I've never done this before but there's a difference between I guess sort of those stretch goals and those stretch jobs in professionalism and perhaps exploiting you know trainees and it's so hard to get experience certainly paid experience out there you know, uh, so, so that made me think of that. And then also people that go out and do jobs that they just don't have the experience for. And I come back to that, you know, having the technical ability, how do you know if you've got that that technical ability? And I always advise my clients to make sure you've um, you know, got like a personal development plan, you yep. know, so you don't just rock up to the CPD events so that you can tick off your CPD at the end of the year, but you've got some a plan of, of where you want to be. And it's not just about attending one session. It's about the mentoring and support that you you get along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And we were really keen that we didn't want the rules to to stop people from, you know, being able to move properly into new areas of work, being able to stretch themselves. And that's why when we talk about the behaviours, we talk about members and firms only undertaking work that they have the knowledge, skills and resources to carry out competently. So you'll have a basic level of knowledge and skill, but it may be that you are aware that you're moving into something where you that's a stretch for you. And that's where the resources come in. That's where maybe having the training that you know you're going to need comes in or having the supervision that you know that you're going to need comes in. You know, it is about thinking about, do I have these three things that would allow me to take on this work? Or am I bashing in where, you know, where I don't have whatever support it is that I need? So it is, you know, we we were very aware of the fact that that obviously nobody's career stays the same. People do move mm. into to new areas, but but it is about thinking about those three elements and whether you can put together the right package of knowledge, skills and resources to be able to do the work competently. Yeah. And rule three is members and firms must provide good quality and diligent service. Yeah. And I have a bit of a niggle with this one and, and, and in particular when it comes to home surveys and the home survey standard. Yeah, not so much the the standard itself, but how it's interpreted by by surveyors on the residential side. So, for a lot of surveyors, you know, that work with with businesses um, or on projects, you scope out what is needed. You negotiate what's in and what's out, and you get to a point where you can then agree terms, um, you know, timelines and all of those things. But you have that 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 negotiation and good understanding beforehand. When it comes to doing surveys on people's homes. We have products and services, you know, um, the home buyer or 
whatever you know the, the firms out there are calling it. And for me, they always tend to fall short in that every homeowner is different mm-hmm. and we're giving them a product, but actually what they really need is something slightly different or the the not so much the whistles and bells of a drone survey on top or mm. you know an extra flooding report or damp report or, or whatever it might be but they might need a different type of of service and, and support so for example they actually might just need more time speaking to a surveyor they might mm-hmm. need help with alterations to a building uh, they might need help with signposting to other trades because it then turns out it's you know it's a bigger problem um and yet what we what we offer is is almost like a very flat offering of you know this is what we will we will do and it will help you do that but most certainly on the home purchase side need someone to actually help them all the way through they need someone to help them negotiate do you, you think know, that's and, down? and to sign and just and to, to, to sign post you there so i yeah. i think we've got a we've got to a point where and the home survey standards allows you to do whatever you want yeah. to do that's the, the the freedom of it as long as it's it, it's clear on the levels but i do think we need to offer it's not necessarily being bespoke but having more time scoping out or what does this client really really need do you think that's down to the sort of the lack of public understanding of why you might want a a survey and and what a surveyor could be doing and and the and the the presumption I guess that that people are only really worried about price or I, I think know, or, or it, yeah. might be worried about feeling like they're being upsold in some so way. So I I think yes it is but the bottom line is you know educating the public on anything is like boiling the ocean and rounding <laughs> yeah. up kittens. Yeah, you know the. The home buyer survey in its current sort of guise, if you like, from when it started is what, 20, 30 plus years old. Yeah. And we've got generational change since then. And what a first time buyer might need in terms of support is very different for somebody who's perhaps downsizing. And but I think I think there's a, a big lack in knowledge of what it means to own a home and yeah. what it means to maintain a home. Yeah. What it means to then evolve a home. And adapt it for your growing family's needs, whether that's making it bigger or downsizing, you know, so you've got granny at the back. And I think that's been lost. And we, yeah. we don't offer a necessary service for that. And we don't hear of the family surveyor like we do the, the family lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I think we've personally personal view, people have different views, but I do think we've fallen perhaps into a bit of a trap of here's a largely one size fits all you're buying a house this is what you get yes there are a few variations out there but certainly not many and that then leads into a claims culture because you know you will always fall short yeah you'll always fall short if you haven't spent that time up front understanding what is really really needed tailoring that service to that client, then you will always fall short and there will always be some kind of disappointment. And if people went back and did proper customer research and feedback, a client would always say, well, I would have liked a bit more or I thought it was going to include. And no matter how well a surveyor explains what they were doing and what they're going to do, if it's not what somebody wants, mm. you're always you're, you're on a on a hide into nothing. And And I do wonder if that's why on top of everything else, you know, there's lots of reasons. Claims, particularly on the defect and valuation side of, of over the years, evolved. But I don't see anyone out there doing 
apart from some of the smaller one-man band businesses who do more of that you know have more of that flexibility and working it in a different way I don't see anyone really really doing that that work because it then becomes bespoke and it then becomes you know well our systems don't do it that way and we get the you know the instruction from the bank you know and that we just bolt it on and do them a survey because it's quick you know so when we when we look at rule three and that you know a good quality service well it is quality for what you're doing but does it meet that need yeah I mean and it and that's why the first behaviour is, you know, understand clients' needs and objectives before accepting any professional work. I think I think we're almost talking about a situation though, aren't we, where, you know, the client may not really, may the not client know. may think they have needs and objectives, but yeah. actually if they understood more, they would have different needs and objectives. And this is it. And as, as a professional, it's our job to measure and get a sense of, have they any idea how to do a bit of DIY and put shelf up? Or that are they going to need, you know, me to help, yeah. you know, support them in 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 all sorts of ways? Uh, rule number four: Members and firms must treat others with respect and encourage diversity and inclusion. And I'm so pleased that this this is boldly on there. Yeah. It's very hard, though. I'm sure a lot of one man bands out there, and and you know, I say one man bands, but small businesses make up something like sixty to seventy percent of the RSS membership. Yeah. So there's a good good chunk here, and a, and a small business. I think is classified as under 250 people, which always sounds a bit, quite a big business. Right? Yeah. So we talk about micro businesses and one person bands, you know, but how does somebody working for themselves encourage diversity and inclusion, you know? I, yeah. I mean, and it, this comes back again to sort of proportionality, doesn't it? And, you know, doing what's reasonable. But I suppose it's things like if you're, you know, again, thinking about your clients, thinking about your client base? Do you present your information in a way which allows for the fact that that people are different? You know, as part of the work that we've been doing around client relationships, we've been talking about the fact that if you have a client whose first language isn't English or who comes from a different kind of cultural background to you, your methods of communication might be very different. And just being aware of that and thinking about, am I communicating in a way which helps this person understand? Am I trying to understand what they mean when they communicate with me rather than reacting to the tone or the you know that's that's an example of of you know encouraging inclusion if you take on work experience kids or if you you know or if you are employing people in the business or you're looking for apprentices are you doing that through friends of mates or are you actually thinking about could I be in touch with the local secondary school are there kids out there who maybe haven't thought about surveying that I might be tapping a different talent pool you know there are things like that I mean it is a a place I think where again I'm really keen to and we're looking in the new year at doing some work to again tap into the knowledge and experience of um, established businesses who are already doing this well to try to start to put out some information and some support for members and firms to say what could you do because there is already an awful lot out there there are lots of examples of policies and procedures and, and ways that people you know have done this but it is about what's proportionate and what's reasonable. But it's maybe just about opening your mind a little bit to the fact that people are different and is what yeah. I'm doing limiting maybe the, the people that I'm attracting or, you know, the way that I'm helping people. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, there's absolutely no point in reinventing the wheel. If there are some great yeah. companies, organisations out there that are doing great things, then, you know, why do we as an organisation need to start from scratch? 
And I'm really uh, looking forward to the work that Governing Council, RSS Governing Council, will be doing, setting up a, a, a DNI board. Yeah. But I think there's also a point there of saying, do you know what? We have to embrace some vulnerability and say, well, do you know, I, I perhaps don't know what the right language is. Yeah. And I don't know the right thing to say or do, but I'm on the journey. Yeah. And so long as you're plugging into that, and and, and I think that's something with a, with a lot of firms and surveyors that I come across is, that, well, I haven't worked it out yet, so I'm not going to have a implement a DNI policy or whatever. But by going on the journey, you take people with you yeah. and you learn, learn and grow and that, that openness actually builds momentum. And so I think it's really important, you know, if you're dealing with somebody in a different language and a different culture, is to say, okay, how might how do I best do this? Yeah. Obviously, go and find out from others and, and get the support, but also sort of asking them, you know, well, how do I pronounce your name, for example, yeah. for example, you know, apologies if I get it wrong. And, you know, and and that goes an awful long way to building trust. And I think one of the things I'm quite passionate about is women in surveying. Yeah. And that's just one one small part of a wider, you know, diversity and inclusion piece. And I do believe that if we look at supporting the underserved and underrepresented in our industry, in our work with our clients, then we raise everybody up. And, you know, you can look at minorities, but then, you know, women aren't a minority in that we're half the population and, you know, and it gets yep. complex. But you know what? You you just start by doing something if you're not doing anything, you know. It's just a really simple thing, like in this year's annual review, there's an amazing personal experience from a, a female surveyor who had to start her own protective equipment company because the protective equipment that was on offer was, you know, designed for men and was the wrong sizes mm -hmm. for her. And just those sorts of simple things, when you start to open your eyes about those to those things around you, and as you say, act with curiosity, act with respect and compassion, I think that that there are, you know, a lot of small things that people can do that that help mm. everybody to be able to participate fully and, and get the best services. One thing you've listed here as an example on rule four is members and firms do not bully, victimise or harass anyone. And something that I've seen quite a lot over the past two years, and I don't know whether it's born out of frustrations with what's been happening with RICS and the, and the Levitt Report and, and those things, or whether because, you know, here in the UK, we've had two years of lockdown hell and we're online more than we have ever been to network and communicate. But there's an awful lot more criticism and judgment against each other's, others as surveyors. So, for yeah. example, you know, a lot of judgments against those who are associate RICs versus those who are who are MRICS and what's the difference and yeah. who shouldn't should or shouldn't be doing you know, whatever. And that's all being played out uh, out online. I think people have been very bold. You know, I personally have had, you know, quite a lot of online bullying. I'm not going to deny that's been incredibly stressful, incredibly personal and affected my own business just through being outspoken, being visible. You know, I came in at um, sort of a later stage, if you like, in terms of what was happening at RICS and being part of the, the Levitt review to get things sorted. And yet, you know, some of the things I received, hate mail messages on LinkedIn from people, you know, telling me to to resign and and um, this, that, and the other. And uh, you know, on the one hand, we've got to be listening, absolutely listening to what people say and hear. But on the other hand, you know, we've got to treat each other with respect, 
you know, I didn't put myself on governing council to <laughs> to deal with everything that we that we have, but we we yeah. do. You know, surveyors out there who put themselves on social media to spread the word about the work that they're doing and the exciting projects that they're in. Don't put themselves out to be judged by people who think they are better. And I think we've I think that's something that everybody really has to think about as to how they con- conduct themselves, what they say to people, and but not be afraid of it, but just notice the tone because writing for online is very different to us talking, yeah. you know, and the tone of voice and the, the questions that we might ask can be very different. But that's something that, that makes me quite saddened, actually. Yeah. And nobody wants to stifle debate. You know, there are lots of Absolutely. things that we disagree with. There are things that have gone wrong that people want to call out and quite rightly so, you know, and but it is, isn't it, about the tone. It's about thinking that the person on the other end of that is a fellow human being who has feelings exactly like you do. And it is about how do we express our disappointment or our sometimes our you know entirely justifiable anger mm-hmm. without taking it out on the person. And I think that that is about that's very much about tone. And we wanted in the case study, I know that there were a number of people who, when we consulted on the rules of conduct, were concerned that under rule five, there's a, a separate behaviour, which is about comments in made in public. And their view was that we were trying to stifle kind of criticism of, of our ICS. And I've heard various people say, you know, they were worried that they couldn't say things or regulation would take disciplinary action against them. I mean, I want to start by assuring people that I've worked in regulation there is, you know, we just, we are concerned with the public interest. We're not concerned with protecting people within our ICS from valid criticism. But, you know, it's not fair on anybody for that to be done in in a bullying way or or using unprofessional language or being personal about people. That's not appropriate. And and the 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 worst thing about about LinkedIn is, you know, we can see who you are and your career and and who who you work for. And it doesn't do anyone any good. So so rule five, as you just mentioned there, members and firms must act in the public interest, take responsibility for their actions and act to prevent harm and maintain public confidence in the profession. And that's really coming back to why we have, why we are an institution and why we have the Royal Charter, you know, to, to maintain the public advantage. And I guess, you know, sometimes we get so lost in doing the job and the technical stuff and what we do that we forget the purpose and and why we we have this royal this royal charter yeah. absolutely and again this isn't a council of perfection this isn't about saying mm. that you know you can only take on work that people will find worthy and you know you can never take on controversial work or or work that some people might object to but it is about saying is what i'm doing harmful you know without justification or in breach of the law do i have to step up and say something here do i need to whistle blow and you know, do I need to think about what I'm doing and the people that it's affecting in a slightly different way? Mm. And I guess a good example of how that uh, how that could be implemented actually is Grenfell. Yeah. You know, so as we, you know, as we record this, you know, the government, the UK government has recently issued a, an apology and anybody who's been following it over the inquiry over the past couple of years, you know, there were just multiple opportunities for someone to say, why are we using this stuff? And what is it designed to do? And and I come back to that, you know, in the doing the job in context, 
Yeah. You know, what is the what was the purpose of the material? You know, what was it meant to do, you know, for the people who live inside the the home? And it's bringing that people element back into what, what is, can be quite a technical job, be that valuation or, you know, or, or construction. And that's quite sad to see. But now we know we do better. And, and at every point, it's saying to ourselves, what does this do? How does it affect people? Who else needs to know? And doing that check-in with yourself regularly and with your team so that we that we that those things don't happen yeah thank brilliant. you so much for your time Chrissy. No, it's really interesting conversation thank you so much for your support this year i really hope you've enjoyed these podcasts it's been great to bring them to you that's the end of the season i'll be back hopefully in 2022 with a new podcast with new guests But please do get in touch. Let me know how you've enjoyed it. And don't forget, you can show your support to keep the podcast going at Buy Me A Coffee and I'll pop the link in the show notes. Take care.